There's one problem that humanity faces and humanity deals with that biblical Christianity claims to have a solution to. And that problem is the problem of guilt. And that, that's the entire premise of the gospel. We were guilty. We were guilty of sin. We were guilty of rebellion. We were guilty of rejecting God. And Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. And he rose again three days later to deal with the sin that we were guilty of. To deal with the fact that we are guilty. Now when people say guilt... What they're typically talking about when they say, man, I feel guilty about this thing I've done, or, or that guy should feel guilty about what he's done. What we're typically talking about is the shame that someone feels because of what they've done wrong. Guilt and shame are not the same thing. Guilt, sorry, guilt and shame are totally different. Now, there are two different types of guilt. There is overt guilt, and then there is Covert guilt, and they're, they're both drastically different. Now, overt guilt is when you know you've done something wrong. You know you've broken a rule. It can be when you see the lights flashing behind you, blue and red, and you pull over, and the police officer comes to your window and says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you know why he pulled you over. You were going 85 and a 55. You know why he pulled you over. You were texting and driving, which is a primary offense now, people. Do not text and drive. It's dangerous, and it'll get you a ticket, and it's a very expensive ticket. I know from experience. Not because of me, though. Someone else in my family who drives, who shall rename nameless, is in the nursery, texted and drove. So, but maybe it's, it's, it's guilt from, it is guilt from something you know that you've done wrong. So you know you've done something wrong, and you feel guilty about it. Maybe it is some sin that you have willingly committed. Maybe it's a lie that you told. Maybe it's something you cheated on to get ahead. Maybe it's a, a website you visited. Maybe, maybe you've been a bad parent. Maybe you've been a bad sibling. Maybe you've been a bad child and you know it. And your actions and the way you've treated people has caused hurt, has caused pain, and you know you have done wrong. <coughs> now sometimes... You can resolve the issue and deal with it. Sometimes you can, you can ask forgiveness. You can repent. You can seek restitution. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes the damage that you've done because of your sin is permanent and irreversible. Maybe relationships are permanently destroyed from an affair. The offending spouse know, that, know they've done wrong. They know that they sin. They know that they hurt their spouse. They hurt their family. And they would like to make it right, but they can't. The damage is just too deep. Maybe the person you hurt is gone, and you can't say you're sorry anymore. And even if you can deal with the guilt, even if you can take care of the guilt and seek restitution and make things right, you still have to deal with the shame that goes with it. Now, as I said, shame and guilt are not the same things. Now, shame can grow out of guilt. Guilt makes us question our morality. And guilt, because we're questioning our morality, brings shame. We ask questions like, what, what kind of person am I that I would do such a thing? What kind of a child of God could do that or hurt that person or act that way? And 
And how, how can I do such a thing? Am I really that bad? For example, if you were caught embezzling from work and you went to court, you were sentenced, you were convicted, you had to pay a fine, you were convicted and had to go to prison, and you went to jail for two years, you paid your fine, your guilt has been dealt with. Legally, your guilt is that you've done, your, you've done the crime, you've suffered the punishment, you've paid your fine, you've served your sentence, the guilt is done. But when you come back to church, there's still that sense of shame. The guilt's been dealt with. The guilt's been paid for. But there's still that sense of shame because of what you've done wrong. Some of us in here, we've, we've messed up in ways that we hope no one ever finds out about. Because of the guilt, no. Because of the shame that the guilt brings. The guilt's been dealt with. If you're saved, the guilt, the, the sin's been taken care of. The guilt has been paid for. But the shame is still there. There are some sins that if we confess it, we get sympathy from other believers. You confess that you struggle with lust. People are like, yeah, I understand. We'll, we'll pray for you. Struggle with pride, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. We'll, we'll pray for you. You don't admit, I struggle with adultery. That doesn't get you a sympathetic nod. That's not something we want people finding out about. There are other sins that bring shame because of the stigma associated with them. David Powelson said this. He said, some sins do not elicit sympathetic nods. If you were adulterous and your family found out, they would not be nodding. Shameful sins receive stares, not nods. Even when guilt is confessed, the shame remains. And the Bible talks about this. Proverbs, the Bible says, the adulterer, adulterer will receive a mark. Now, if someone, we, adultery is a horrible sin. If someone commits that, it's a shame. But if they confess their sin before God, if they reconcile with their spouse if they restore the relationship between their spouse. The guilt's been done with, but there's always that shame. Especially if it's, if it's known. People always say, yeah, that's the, that's the guy that cheated on his wife. Yeah, she stayed with him. She's a, she's a great girl. But that guy, watch him. The guilt's done, but the shame still remains. There are certain sins that when confessed in a group, it brings a group closer. Other sins are confessed in a group. It makes things kind of awkward. And all of that is what we call overt sins. Sins we do, we know that we've done wrong, and overt sins bring a sense of guilt, guilt from something you knew that you've done wrong. But then there's covert guilt. Covert guilt is a sense that you've done something wrong. You may not have done anything wrong, but there's just that sense that... I just, I feel guilty and I don't know why. I feel shame and I don't know why. We see this in Genesis chapter number 3 when Adam and Eve fell. After the fall, they had a sense of shame and a sense of guilt, not because they disobeyed God, but because they were naked. They were naked in chapter 2. Matter of fact, you read Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. Then they eat the fruit. And the Bible says their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they were ashamed of their nakedness, so they tried to cover it up. Now, being naked isn't a sin. It is now, right here, and it's, it's bad now. 
But in the Garden of Eden, when it's Adam and Eve, it's a married couple, and they're naked in front of each other, there's no sin there. But there was shame. There was shame that was caused by just this covert guilt. The shame wasn't from eating the, sense, from eating the fruit. It was a sense of shame because they were naked. Now, when that sense of guilt drives us, that sense of shame, when we allow that to drive us and control us, it can ruin relationships, it can destroy our lives, and it keeps us distant from our Heavenly Father. Again, you see in Genesis chapter 3, their eyes are open, they know they're naked, they're shamed, they cover themselves, and they hide from God. And when God comes looking, now God knew where they were. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam said, we hid because we ate the fruit. No. He said, we hid because we were naked and we were ashamed. And God said, who told you you were naked? Because he knew what they had done. They, their shame from something they didn't, I mean, they should have been, felt guilty from eating the fruit, for disobeying God, for rebel, but they felt guilty because all oh, know we're naked. And so the sense of shame drove them to relieve the presence of God. So how does the Bible deal with guilt? How does the Bible deal with shame? It's what Hebrews chapter 9 deals with. So look at Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse number 1. <coughs> then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made the first wherein was a candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with a golden, with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over the cherubims of the glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. <clears throat> Uh, but then the second went the high priest alone once every year without blood, <coughs> not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that, the, that unto the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which we were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once unto the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling of the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did y'all catch all that? Yeah, we're going to get into it. All right, a lot going on right there. Now, the first 12 verses of chapter number 9, the author goes through the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he explains that the, the whole temple 
the, the outer court, the inner court, the, the brazen laver, the wash pot, all these things that they had to do, the holy place, the most holy place, the gold, all these things, they were set up to deal with our guilt and the sins of separation we had from, it, from God that sin causes and guilt causes. <clears throat> and in verse number two, he describes the two intersections of the temple. Now, the first was called the holy place, and here's what it looked like. Of course, here you have the holy place. This is the largest room behind this, this curtain, and then that's the holy place. And behind the second curtain is the whole, most holy place, or the holy of holies. Now, the holy place was outside the most holy place, and the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It is where the presence of God dwelt. Now, there was a separation between the two of this massive curtain, and this signified man's separation from God. Because no one could go behind that curtain except one man, one time a year. If DJ wanted to go see God and walked into that most holy place, he would be struck down dead instantly. If anyone else who wasn't the high priest, and even if the high priest wanted to go in there, and it wasn't the Day of Atonement, he would be killed. There were, it, it was a massive separation between man and God where God was visibly showing Israel and showing us your sin keeps you from me. Your sin, your guilt separates you from God. Now, in the, the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture and each, each had uh, some very important significance. First was the golden lampstand or the golden candlestick. It stayed lit day and night as a reminder of God's continual presence with him. And in the holy place, this was the only light source. Now, again, this thing here, you see any windows on it? There's no windows. No doors, there's curtain, and the curtains are 14 inches thick. How many of y'all have room darkening uh, curtains on your, on, on your rooms? A couple of you. I bet they ain't 14 inches thick. You know how much light gets to a 14-inch thick curtain? None. This place is dark. So there's the golden candlestick. And it represented, it was a symbol of God's continual presence with him. Then there was the table of showbread. On the table of showbread was 12 loaves of bread, and it was called the bread of the presence. This was a symbol of the bread that God had fed Israel with in the wilderness, and it was a reminder that God would always provide for them. Then there was the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense, it stood directly in front of the Holy of Holies, and it always had in smoke of incense going up, and it represented two things. First of all, it represented one more barrier of separation between God and man. There was a barrier of smoke and a barrier of the curtain. But it also represented the, the prayers that man sent up to God every single day. So separating the Holy of Holies was a curtain, which was called the parochet. Now the word parochet literally means shut off. Man is shut off from God. The, that was the purpose of the veil, to shut man off from God. It was 14 inches thick. It had 72 cords of fabric, uh, of blue and purple fabric woven throughout of it. And it had multiple layers overlapping so that no light could get into the Holy of Holies. So that the Holy of Holies 
without the presence of God was completely pitch black. The only light inside the Holy of Holies was the presence of God. And all of this was set up to remind man your sin and your guilt separates you from God. Now inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Doesn't look like what Indiana Jones found, but that's what it looked like. Was the Ark of the Covenant. Now there were three things inside the Ark, the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant or the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat, and the mercy seat was where the high priest one day a year would go sprinkle blood to atone for the sins of Israel for one year. And guarding the mercy seat were the two cherubims, and they guarded the, sprint, the, the presence of God. Only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would go in, he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, but the priest couldn't just wake up on that day, grab some blood, go in there, sprinkle it, he's done. He had to take meticulous preparation to get ready to go in there. He had to make sure he was physically speaking pure and clean. He prepared for this a week in advance. Any if any defilement was found on him, he would be struck down in the presence of God. Now, tradition states that this was such a serious issue that he had bells on the bottom of his robes and a rope tied to his ankle that if he went into the Holy of Holies and God struck him dead, the people outside would hear the bells and they could drag his corpse out without having to go in and die themselves. It was such a tremendous issue. So you, you better be sure, if you're the high priest and you're going into the Holy of Holies, you are going to make sure that you do everything right, that you take every step, you wash every time God said to wash, you wear everything God says to wear, and you took meticulous time to make sure that you were prepared to go into the presence of God. So the week leading up to the Day of Atonement, the high priest went through an intense process before he entered in. <coughs> here's what Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard, how he's, here's how he describes it. A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and throughout the week he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's Word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, he bathed head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay for the penalty of his own sins. After that, he came out and bathed completely again. And new white linen was put on him, and he went in it again this time, sacrificing for the sins of the priests. But that's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe and dressed in brand new pure white linen. And he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of all the people. This was all done in public. The temple was crowded and those in attendance watched closely. There was a thin screen and he bathed behind it. But the people were present. They saw him bathe. They saw him dress. They saw him go in and come back out. He was their representative before God, and they were cheering him on. 
they were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God. Now, after the high priest would come out, he would go through the ceremony of the scapegoat. After he came out the third time, they would do the ceremony of the scapegoat. That's down in, in chapter uh, Hebrews 9. Look at verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both and the book and the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Now, what would happen during the, the, the ceremony of the scapegoat is two goats were brought in and one was sacrificed for sin. And then the, the priest would take the blood of that goat and sprinkle it towards the people. Then he took a, a piece of wool and he dipped it in the blood and he would tie it around the neck of the other goat. Then that goat was set free in the wilderness. It represented the fact that the goat was carrying the sin of the people away. Now, they were very sure, they were very careful to make sure this goat didn't make it back in the camp. Because goat, they get out in the wilderness, they wander back in the camp. They would set men throughout the camp to make sure the goat got far enough away from the camp, and then they would push it off a cliff. Make sure that sin won't come back. Because that goat represented the sin of, of Israel being taken away. You didn't want it coming back. And so all this was done to deal with their guilt. All these ceremonies were to prepare the high priest to enter into the presence of God. But look what the writer says about it. Look back in verse number 9. <coughs> of all these ceremonies, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. So all the ceremonies, all the washing. I mean, every time the Day of Atonement happened, the high priest had to have three brand new, uh, complete head-to-toe changes of clothes that were completely pure white made out of linen. And look, linen wasn't cheap, and it was hard to get things white. But he had to have three brand new outfits that were pure, that were spotless. He had to wash himself three times a day, three times a day. He had to take meticulous. And they say all those things couldn't do the one thing that needed to be done. It couldn't perfect the conscience. It couldn't remove the guilt or change the heart. Look at verse number 11. But Christ, those are some good words right there. <coughs> but Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling to the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So don't miss the, what the author is saying here. He is saying that the symbols, everything the high priest did, everything in the temple, the entire setup, they were symbols that pointed to something else. They pointed to Christ. The high priest went through all this stuff, but it still couldn't take away his guilt. Every year he had to do it again. 
Every year he had to, redeem, he had to, had to kill a, a goat or a sheep to, to pay for his sin. Every year he had to go back into the Holy of Holies. Every year he had to wash again. Every year he could, all this stuff, the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of years that this went on, it never took away the guilt, but it all pointed to the fact that Jesus would come as a perfect sacrifice and a perfect high priest, and he could, would do what that couldn't do. He would deal with our guilt once and for all. All point to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, the stories, the prophets, the miracles, the kings, the, the giant killings, the walls falling down, the Red Seas parting, everything points to Jesus. They were shadows of what would come. Jesus was the substance of what did come. <laughs> the cleanliness required in the temple was a picture of the holiness required by God to be in his presence. Look, God wasn't concerned about the dirt on the high priest's clothes. He, he made dirt. Dirt didn't bother him. But the physical cleanness was a picture of how morally clean God required man to be. And the effect that uncleanness has on you, it gives you a picture of how moral uncleanness affects us. If someone reaches out, if some, you meet somebody new, and you say, hey, my name is my name's Sean, what's your name? Oh, I'm Bob. I ain't shaking Bob's hand. I'm like, hey, Bob, nice to meet you. Or, hey, how you doing? And they would give me a high five. No. You would like, oh. Or you shake somebody's hand, and they got, they got like dirt, or you hope it's dirt. On their hand, you're like, uh, I got a cold. Ugh, I don't want to shake your hand. You get close to somebody, and they got really bad body odor. It's kind of report. You're like, oh, man. Or someone talks to you, and they're a close talker, and they just have the worst breath. It smells like a possum crawled in their mouth and died. It's like, oh, it's repulsive. God says, that's what your sin is to me. It's repulsive. That's why he wanted the people to clean themselves, to show them your, your physical filth is as disgusting to me as, or your, your, your moral guilt is as disgusting to me as physical filth is to you. If you're going to talk to someone, if you're going to meet somebody important, you make sure you're, you're clean. You check yourself in the mirror. Make sure your clothes are, are clean. You maybe. Sniff your armpits. Do I, do I stink? Maybe smell your breath. You don't want to be repulsive to people. That's all symbolic of the reaction God has to moral uncleanness. It is repulsive to him. And the work of the high priest, it all pointed to the work of Jesus. All that preparation was showing that Jesus would come and do once and for all what we could never do no matter how many baths we took, no matter how many lambs we killed, no matter how many goats we sat in the wilderness, he was going to come and do what that could never do. He was going to deal with our sin and take away the guilt. It all pointed to Christ who would do all of that for us, but he did it in a strange way. I mean, you studied the last week of Jesus' life. If you look at it closely, you'll notice that Jesus seems to be preparing for his own day of atonement. Six days before the Passover, he's anointed with oil. He's wa his feet are washed, and 
Mary anoints him, preparing his body to go to the cross. The night before sacrifice, he stays up all night long praying to God the Father. And he, he did all this to put away our sin forever. He wasn't a sinful high priest making sacrifice for his own sins. He was a perfect high priest making sacrifice for our sins. And each piece of the tabernacle was a shadow of Christ. He was the lampstand that brought light, the light of God to us. He says, I am the light of the world. He was the table of showbread. He says, I am the bread of life. He is the altar of incense, always making intercession on our behalf before God. And the curtain was a symbol of his flesh that would be torn so that we could enter into the presence of God. He was the mercy seat where his blood was sprinkled so we could forever and once and for all find forgiveness of sin. He was a scapegoat that carried our sins away forever. What the temple gave us was a shadow. Christ fulfilled the reality. He made an end of sin. He took away the guilt, and he sat down forever. And the author says that the blood of Jesus does something with our guilt that the old covenant can never do. He shows us three things that the blood of Christ does for our guilt and our shame. First thing it does is it takes us takes us from guilty to pure. Look at four, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus did not simply cover our sins. He did not simply cover our guilt or waive the penalty of our guilt. He removed our sin from us forever. He did away with our sin forever. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said it would now be unjust for God to punish us for our sin because then God would be requiring two payments for the same sin. Jesus, when he died on the cross and he rose again, he dealt with our sin forever. He, he took the shame, he took the punishment, he took the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. So that if we would just accept his gift of salvation, then our sin would be paid for, our guilt would be removed, and we wouldn't have to live in shame anymore because he did what we could never do. The Bible is clear that apart from the blood of Christ, there's no forgiveness of sins. Look at verse number 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It says that God makes us pure. The word remission there means to release from a penalty, to forgive as if no crime has been committed. The forgiveness of God means that you are released from the negative consequences of your guilt. Purity means that you are giving, given an exalted position of righteousness before God. We've been bathed, we've been cleansed, we've been made pure, and we could have never done that on our own. The blood of Christ has done that for us. So it takes us from guilty to pure. Secondly, it takes us from dead works to loving service. Again, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot of God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Religion is filled with all kinds of works, but they're all dead works. Religion does nothing to purify us or save us. I've told this morning one of the couples that's coming 
uh, to the Invite Your One. It's a, it's a couple that lives nearby, and I did a wedding for their sister uh, last year, and they asked if I would do their wedding. I went and met with them yesterday. And the reason I'm doing their wedding is because they're Catholic, but they're divorced. So the Catholic Church won't let them come back until they get an annulment through the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church said, you've got to go through these religious rituals to be worthy to be married in our church. And they said, would you marry us in our living room? I said, sure. So I was able to talk to them, talk, gave them the gospel. They didn't accept Christ. They, you know, they're religious Catholic. They think they're already saved. So there's some stuff we've got to work through. But i got a couple more meetings to meet with them. They're coming on the 21st. So I have an opportunity to preach the gospel, see them get saved. But their religion does nothing for them. Your religion does nothing for you. Religion doesn't save. It's all dead work. So before the gospel, we were doing good works. We were trying to do them to see that to get the approval of God. If you're doing something good so that God would reward you, that's not loving God. That's loving yourself. If I give my tithes and offerings so God will reward me, that's I will, I'm loving me and I won't I won't. I won't benefit from doing what God has told me to do. If I, if I give my tithes and offerings because God said I command it, God loves a cheerful giver, and I say, God, I'm just, I want to do this because I love you, that's, that's a different heart issue. See, religion leads you to dead works because you are doing works to be accepted by God. And there is nothing we can do to be accepted by God. The gospel gives you God's acceptance as a gift. And as a result of that gift, as a result of that acceptance, we begin to serve God because of God's love for us. That's the difference in religion and the gospel. In religion, you do works to be accepted by God. But with the gospel, you do works because you've been accepted by God. And the Jewish people, they made a mistake. They took the symbol, the temple, the tabernacle, the high priest, the sacrifices, they took the symbol and began to treat it like the real thing. They began to think that the blood of bulls and goats could actually take away their sins. And, and people do that today. They think good works can save them. Maybe saying a few Hail Marys can take away your sin, or if, if you, you have a good, good enough life, if you do a good enough, enough good deeds, by the time you die and your good deeds outweigh your bad, then you'll be accepted. That's like never taking a bath and just spraying yourself with Axe Body Spray. You're not clean. You just smell bad. You don't think you do, but we all do. It's like spraying cologne instead of taking take a bath. It doesn't clean you up. The, the cologne doesn't clean you up. It just hides the stink underneath. Only the blood of Jesus can take away sin. It doesn't just cover sin. It doesn't spray cologne on it. It removes the sin, it removes the guilt, and it transforms you to an accepted child of God. So it takes you from dead works to loving service. And finally, it takes us from dread to longing. Look at verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. <clears throat> so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This is the biggest change that the gospel brings. We used to have a sense of dread about God. The high priest, even though he, he did all the work, he went away for a week, he made sure he ate clean things, he made sure he didn't touch anything unclean, he, he made sure he stayed up all the night before reading. And look, I know it's hard to stay up reading your Bible and praying all night long, but if you've got to stay up all night long to pray and read your Bible so you don't die, you're probably motivated to do it. 
So he stayed up all night long praying and reading his Bible. He woke up, he, he got up, that left his tent that day, and he, he got to the, to the place where he cleaned it. I mean, he's scrubbing everything. He's scrubbing under his fingernails. He's getting his nostrils clean. He's cleaning. He did everything right. He put on the clean clothes. He, he took the sack of the blood of sacrifice, and he went into the holy place, and then he goes into the holy of holies. And right before he enters, I know he's thinking, I've done everything right. I followed all the rules. I'm as clean as I can possibly be. But as he steps through that curtain, there's still that sense of, have I done enough? That's why he had a rope tied to his foot. Because what, what, if, what if God doesn't accept me? What if I've done all this and God still strikes me dead? There's that sense of dread. Now that Jesus has paid our sin debt, now that he has taken the wrath of God, now that he has dealt with our sin and our guilt, we don't have dread coming before God. We can boldly come into his presence. Because we're such a group. No, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't dread coming before God. We long to be with God. Rather than fear of judgment, we begin to long for God. See, before God, you fear judgment. You don't want to be around God when you're assured of his love and acceptance for you. You start to crave to be around him. It's because of this heart transformation that we can escape the shame of our sin. The problem we face is we know we've been forgiven. The guilt is gone. The sin's been dealt with. The guilt's been taken care of. But we still feel shame over our sins. See, the gospel will transform you to the point where you're a, a new person. You're a new creature. And that part that did, that, that, you, that was old, has been dead and it's been crucified and it's with Christ. Then, but the, the penalty's been put away. But what do we do with the sins we've committed since salvation? Because how many of y'all, once you were saved, you've been saved, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're washed in the blood, your sins have been dealt with, have never sinned since? Yeah. How many of y'all sinned today? Y'all that didn't put your hand up, you sinned by line right there. Put your hand up. So how do you, how do you deal with the shame that my sin's been forgiven, but I keep doing this? I keep struggling here. What do you do when your sins have committed? What do you, you say you haven't done any, you know, we, we've got to deal with these sins. The Bible says we're new creatures, but we're trapped in a body of sin. Our spirit is new, but our flesh is still sinful and corrupt. And the part that made the mistakes, the part that sins is the part that Jesus died to put away. And when we feel shame about what we've done, we say, yeah, I'm the, what kind of guy would do that? What kind of guy who's been saved by Christ would, would act that away? That Christ has died for me. How can I act this away? Every day we are to put to death that sinful person that made those shameful mistakes and live as a new person. Often, though, we know God's forgiven us, but the shame we deal with is we can't forgive ourselves. We commit a sin. We go before God. We claim 1 John 5... If we confess our faults, he's faithful and just to cleanse, uh, forgive us and cleanse us all our sins and cleanse all our righteousness. But we've still got shame because we can't forgive ourselves. What kind of a Christian would do that? I'm a child of God and I would, I would, I would go there? I would say that? You're saying when you do that, you are saying that your opinion of yourself matters more than God's opinion of you. You have to base your worth on what God's is about you, 
And God says, you're forgiven, you're clean, and you're a cherished child of God. And he did that so that all the accusing voices we deal with, either from the devil or from others or from ourselves, can be silenced. I read a story about a little boy who he killed his grandmother's pet duck. He was out one day with a slingshot and just accidentally, not really paying attention like boys typically do, pulled back and let it go and hit the duck in the head and killed it. Look, that's not funny. <laughs> a, dead, a duck is dead, people. But so he kills the duck. He looks around. No one saw. He quickly hides the dead duck's body and thinks, got away with it. Gets up to the house and his sister's there. She says, I saw what you did. I saw that you killed that duck. And he's like, oh, she's gonna, she's gonna, I'm not going to tell on you, but you're going to have to earn my silence. And so whenever she had to do the dishes, she would just look at him and say, remember the duck? And he'd do the dishes. When she had to take out the trash, she'd just look at him and say, hey, remember the duck? And he'd have to take out the trash. And this would, every time he went, and if he ever got mad, she'd just look at him and say, hey, remember the duck? And his shame would make him do it. Well, finally he got sick of it. He said, I can't take it anymore. So he goes to his grandmother. He says, Grandma, you know, a while ago, I, I killed your duck. And I'm sorry about that. And his grandmother looked at him. She hugged him. And she said, I know. I saw when you did it. And I forgave you then. I was just wondering when you'd get sick and tired of your sister holding that above you. She had already forgiven him. You know, God saw what you did. God saw you killed that duck. And God's forgiven you. And God's cleansed you. If you seek forgiveness, God's forgiven you. So if God has already seen you, if God's already forgiven you, don't let anyone look at you and say, remember the duck? You've been forgiven. The guilt is gone and the shame is gone. God took care of the duck. So walk in newness of life and freedom. Maybe you've done something against, wrong against someone else. You need to go to them and ask forgiveness and seek restitution where you can. But the real guilt, the unsettledness, that soul disquiet, that shame can only be relieved as finding peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of his life through his resurrection. Don't let anybody, including yourself, make you live in shame for what God's already forgiven. Pray, Heavenly Father.